The title of my sermon this morning is So You're a Christian, Romans 6, So You're a Christian. We're going to read the first 11 verses, starting in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ who raised from, sorry, just as Christ who raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him as in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So also, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God for his word. And so as we, we come through, and I said last week that as we come through this heavy doctrinal section in Romans, all the way from sort of <clears throat> chapter four and five, so dense, so theological. How did God deal with our sin? When did God deal with our sin? In what manner and, and through Christ, how did Jesus actually atone for our sin? All of those theological realities that undergird our faith. Those are the things that we cling to that make us Christians. And so at the beginning of chapter six, he says, okay, so you're a Christian, what should you do? If you believe and embrace these things, how should you live? And I want to tell an analogy that I hope as we work through this passage will begin to make more sense. So as a carpenter, I, I most of my job was renovations, which means I took something old, tore it out, and then, and then overlaid something new. That's the essence of a renovation. As a Christian, our lives can be said, more, we're more like renovation than new construction, all right? We, we, God takes something that is corrupt and, and sin-infested and then remakes it and transforms it. And so as a remodeler, that's what I would do. But one of the worst hindrances to a smooth renovation is failing to deal with all of the old material first. That is just the worst. When you leave things and you think, hopefully I don't have to take that out. And then as you're putting new finished material in, whether it's tile or drywall and you come to something and you realize it's in the way when you have to go back to demolition it is you're, you're damaging new material you're getting dust and, and and grime and mold in some instances on finished material and so as as a as a remodeler one of the things you want to do is get as much of the old out as you can and get it all ready for new construction because if you leave some of the old behind you end up compromising the new it's not a perfect analogy, but in very, in, in many ways, we are like that remodeler, considering ourselves dead to sin. In other words, let it be gone to bring the body of sin 
to nothing so that the new could come in and take residence in our hearts and lives. Now, again, it's an imperfect analogy. We will always sin. We will always be repenting. Um, but certainly to take seriously the presence of indwelling sin is the, uh, is the essence of that. And so, as I said last week, this was my first sermon I ever preached. It was uh, 14 years ago now. And, uh, did you use a construction? Uh, I didn't back then. I was not a carpenter back then. But, I, uh, man, I was so excited to preach. I was preaching to uh, young people, 14, 15, 16-year-olds. And I was only 19 at the time. But I was so passionate about the, the idea that as Christians, we could be freed from sin, that we don't have to be enslaved to sin. Man, did I ever want a 14-year-old to recognize that he or she did not have to be a slave to sin? Even you six and five and four-year-olds, we, we don't have to be slaves to the things that cause discipline and cause disunity and, and, and disharmony in our homes. We don't have to be slaves to those things. We can be made new creatures in Christ. Uh, this was a, really, a real dividing line for me as a Christian. Just, it was a sermon that washed over my own life. Confusion and discouragement, and then true progress and joy in Jesus Christ. Now, I've discovered more of my own sinful nature that has to be rooted out since then. It doesn't mean that I was on this perfect, smooth path as a Christian, but I, I finally understood not to measure my salvation by how I felt, but to measure it in terms of what God said about me. That's how I began to measure my faith, and that's, that's, uh, that's what God did. And this is one of those passages that speaks so much to that struggle that we have. But what we're going to, what we're going to learn is that it's a battle first in the mind. That's why the final exhortation says, so consider yourselves as dead to sin and alive to Christ. It's a battle first inwardly before it is one outwardly. And so as we launch in, we've got three points Verses one to four is this is what we're not saying that sin is not a big deal anymore. Our second heading in verses five through seven is so how do we change and then finally, our new identity is irreversible in the last four verses. So Paul launches in here in Romans 6, verse 1, by saying, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That is what Paul uses often as he writes the scriptures. It's a, it's a rhetorical device, which means it's a way of speaking to get people's attention. It's a tactic that he uses to persuade the people that, he's listening, that are listening to him. Really what he's doing there is thinking, what is my opponent thinking right now? What is my opponent thinking right now? So as Paul goes through and talks about how in Adam we die, but in Christ we live, he's anticipating mostly, mostly Jewish critics. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But what he's recognizing, there's always people who are ready to attack the gospel. There's always people ready to misrepresent the gospel. They want to exploit some point of, not paradox, but near paradox in the Christian faith. And there are many. I mean, you've all, maybe <clears throat> maybe you haven't if you're blessed, but if you've been online, there's always people who want to bring up those verses that appear like paradoxes and say, look at the silliness that you Christians believe. There's always somebody who wants to exploit the truth. Now, I'll recognize that there are some who are just confused, who just don't understand. But Paul recognized that most of the time it was his opponent's who would intentionally misrepresent or intentionally misunderstand the scriptures. So these questions, <clears throat> they expose people who want to misrepresent and undermine the truth. 
And they also confront a second type of person, which is people who want to hide behind a false dilemma. Do you know what a false dilemma is? Well, it's a person who says, well, if it's that, then it can't be that. It's a false contradiction. It's a false dichotomy. And people want to set up false dichotomies all the time in the Christian life. Well, if God chose to save me, well, then I guess we don't have to preach the gospel. No, that's a false dilemma. We know that God chooses people to save him, but we're also commanded to go and preach the gospel to the whole world. It's a false dilemma. So he wants to expose people who want to hide inside a false dilemma. And the one that he's attacking particularly here is the one that says, oh, well, it's by grace. Super. So if we keep sinning, then God's grace will just keep getting larger and larger and God will be more glorified. Well, that's a... That's a very insidious way of hiding behind an apparent truth because remember, Paul just said where sin, where the law came in to increase transgression, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's chapter five, verse 20, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And so Paul's saying, okay, I know what some of you critics are thinking. Oh, so where sin increases, grace increases. And that way we can glorify God by continuing in sin because God's grace will be put on display. Well, if this is your thinking or if this is the way that you approach the Bible or somebody that you know approaches the Bible, these questions are made to make you feel uncomfortable. These questions are made to confront you. These questions are made to expose you before the living God. And if you've ever been offended by a preacher who seemed to nail your issue right on the head, Not because he was being offensive, but because through God's word, something was exposed in you that you realized that you were either misrepresenting or hiding behind. That's the word of God rooting out those things in your life and bringing the clarity of the gospel to your life. Jesus did the same thing. In Luke 20, this is one of the best passages, examples in in Luke. Religious leaders, he said, I have a question for you. Was John's baptism from heaven or from men? And it was a perfect question that they chose not to answer because they said to themselves, if we say his baptism was from heaven, Jesus will say, well, then why don't you believe his message? But if we say his baptism is from men, we'll be in trouble because people really like John the Baptist. He's got a lot of followers. So Jesus' question was perfectly staged to expose their hypocrisy. The fact that they had no concern for the truth and that all they wanted to do was uh, was gain, you know, score points against Christ. And Christ would have none of it. And friends, as Christians, this happens to us all the time. People want to score points against you all the time. They want to say, oh, don't you, be- uh, you know, are you against love? Are you against two people loving each other regardless of who they are? It's a false dilemma. And Christians, we're so often getting points scored on us because we're just afraid to say, you don't care about the truth. You don't care about the truth at all. And in many ways, Christ withheld the truth from those who opposed him. And Paul here says, oh, is this your question? Should we keep sinning so that grace will abound? This is Paul's specific tactic here. Because he knows he's going to be accused of that by religious purists, by Jews who were in power, and by Jews, by the way, who took, in some ways, very seriously, the most holy offering, the guilt offering. Paul said, Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? Should we take 
chapter five, verse 20 and say, oh, this must be the hermeneutic here would be, well, okay, well, if sin increases and grace increases, then therefore I should sin more so that grace will increase more. That would be a false interpretation of scripture. Scripture has true interpretations and it has false interpretations. Paul is saying that's a false one. Okay, that's a false one. He says, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. Absolutely not. Banish the thought. May it never be said among Christians that we embrace sin because it brings glory to God somehow. Sin is always evil. I don't know if you've ever been, have you ever seen the exhibition of confession? Where people who are, who are habitually engaged in sin, <clears throat> they make an exhibition of their confession in order to bring glory to the grace of God. You know, if you've been part of men's groups who will, they'll continually, continually confess their sexual sin and say, but oh, can't we just, aren't we so delighted to glory in God's grace? It's in a direct repudiation of this. It's confession exhibition. In a way, it excuses the sin that we're going in over and over and over again because, hey, it gives me an opportunity to draw attention to God's grace. It happens all the time, and it needs to be repudiated. Paul says, by no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? That's, that's a simple biological statement. How can we who die to sin still live in it? You say, well, when did I die to sin? <clears throat> you know, when I became, when you became a Christian, did all your sin just wash away and you never struggled again? No, as we've said before, the struggle begins when you step out of the grave. It begins, the battle begins at the time of conversion. So when did we die to sin? Listen, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? <clears throat> your baptism... Your baptism is a sign, and it is an identification with Christ's burial in the grave, his death of his own. Your baptism is your unity with Jesus in the grave. Your baptism is, is standing up and saying, here I am, dying with Jesus Christ. It's a full embrace of the end of your life as you know it. Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever thought of your baptism that way? It's the end of your life as you knew it. It's the end of you being the master of your own life. It is dying with Christ. And so it's a contradiction to willfully participate in the things that we've died to while we claim Christ. It's just like calling up a dead person's house to collect unpaid uh, utility bills. The dead person cannot do it for that person has died. It's the same response. And so when temptation comes calling, temptation should find in us a dead person, unable to respond, uninterested in responding because we have died to the sins that once enslaved us. Your baptism is not primarily about your testimony. It's not primarily about sharing the gospel with your cousins and church family. It's not primarily about the potluck that would come after. Those things are all good. But your baptism is primarily you identifying your life as dead in Jesus Christ. Identifying with the shame of his death, his public execution. And so we publicly say we are dying with Christ. But Christ died with 
sin upon his life. We are dying to sin. We are walking away from sin's mastery over our lives. And so do not be deceived that justification is a free gift. We've seen that in in Romans 3. Justification is totally free, but it will cost you your life. Your justification in Christ is free. It is a free gift, but it also costs you your whole life. Again, it's one of those paradoxes of the Christian faith that must be embraced. We cannot earn our justification, but by the same token, the only way to receive it is to die, to be given new hands and a new heart to receive that which God has planned for us and given to us. Baptism is a death, but it's a death of our sinful nature. It's a good death. It's a death of our nature that longs and craves and lusts after sin. It's that kind of death. Becoming a Christian is not just turning over a new leaf or trying some new program on or just getting some new guru who's going to help you navigate life's tricky situations. Becoming a Christian is the death of the old in order to make room for the birth of the new. Because Paul says we were buried with his baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This verb walk is very important. He doesn't just say so that we will think in terms of newness of life or so that we will um, you know, believe in terms of newness of life. He says that we will walk, we will do we will be, we will live in newness of life, which means that the, the impression of sin on your life has greatly been diminished. Your footsteps become more righteous. You don't go the places you used to go. You don't say the things you used to say. You don't inflict the things you used to inflict. There is a newness that arises, but only once we've died. There is no way, there's no way to skirt around this. The only way to new life is through the grave. It's through death. It's through baptism into Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, if you are in Christ, you have died to sin. And so how can you assert that you should still live in it or that you can still live in it? And so at this point, we might say, whoa, well, how do we change? Because if I know you because I know myself, I hope I didn't lose that passage if I know you, if you're anything like me, it, it's, it's that it's hard to identify this way. It's hard to live this way. It does not come immediately. And I, I don't have the passage. I, I wrote it down wrong, but there's a passage in first Corinthians where Paul says he goes through, there's those, those lists of sins, right? Some of you were idolaters, fornicators, blasphemers, thieves, violent liars, there's uh, Romans one has one of those lists. First Timothy one has one of those lists. Uh, First Corinthians, I think it's nine has one of those lists. And Paul says, listen, he says, I know some of you walked that way, but he says, such were some of you, such were some of you. You used to be like that. You used to be enslaved to those things. But if we died with him, then we shall also live in him if we have been united in a death like his verse 5 we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his as surely as you have died with christ you will also live with christ 
Verse six, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. What is the old self? He says our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Think of the public shame. Think of the the, the agony of Christ's death and the totality and finality of it. Paul says our old selves are crucified with Christ. They are brutally and mercilessly executed with Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean literally because our baptism suffices to represent that. Your baptism in Christ is your crucifixion in Christ. You don't have to go flog the body or or torture your body in order to depict this. Your baptism is a sufficient symbol, but it does not make the reality any less real that your old self has been put to death. Again, what is the self? It is, as David speaks of in the Psalms, it is the heart. It is the will, the motivation, the desires of the person. It's the totality of who you are. It is the culmination of your personality, your experience, your, the inputs, your education. It is the self. It is who you are. And Paul says that must die. Christianity doesn't say, say, you know, bring the best that you have to God. Christianity says the whole of you must die. All of it must die. First Corinthians 6, 9. 6, 9. First Corinthians 6, 9. Let's read that just so that I... Don't, uh, it's first Corinthians six, nine, for those of you online who didn't hear, do you know, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's bad news. But here's the good news. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Again, that's why there's no shame in looking into our past and saying we were awful. Because we died. We died to those things. Christ crucified us in baptism to those things, and we have been washed and renewed and justified in the name of Jesus Christ. And so... There's this idea of enslavement. We're going to talk about enslavement more in the next two weeks. But in the old self, we are enslaved to sin. And I would say that everybody wants to be free from slavery. It's not just Christians who talk about this. They're, go outside the church. People want to be free from what enslaves them. People want to be free from sin that entangles them and, and commands their lives. Think about how many are enslaved to wealth. They abandon their families. They abandon all responsibilities and hobbies and rest in the pursuit of wealth and prestige. And they're enslaved to it. They can't get loose of it. Think of those who are enslaved to, to sexual fantasy and they destroy their families. They destroy the lives of, of young people. They destroy the lives of everything around them in pursuit of this, this lust that destroys. There's all types of slavery that command our lives. And Paul says, you can be freed from that slavery. But the old self has to be crucified. Why is that? Because the self, who we are, that's what's enslaved. Some who feel the enslavement of sin, they resort to isolation. They resort to withdrawing and sort of controlling their environment in order to get rid of sin. They imprison the body in order to free the soul. 
it's the it's the monastery view. It's the sort of if I can get away from all the effects of sin, then I can escape slavery in myself. Martin Luther himself attempted this, the, the reformer. He was living a life racked with guilt, enslaved to his sin. And he went to this monastery. He devoted his life to teaching God's word and, and serving God. And, but he never felt clean. He never felt free until he read the gospel and his inner man died. When his inner man died, his body was no longer enslaved. His body was free once the self was free, once the self had died. Jesus said that from the heart comes every form of evil. Sin comes from within. It's not creeping in and getting us from the outside. It's not our environment that corrupts us. It's us who corrupt our environments through our sin nature. And our sinful nature bears the fruit of evil deeds because our sin nature is attached to a body. Have you ever noticed that? Our sin nature can't be kept in a cupboard on our way to work. You can't stash that before you get in your car or get on the phone or get online. Your sin nature goes wherever your fingertips go. It goes wherever your body and your legs take you. They're knit together. They're knit together. And when we are unconverted, when we do not have Christ, our bodies, because we, our personhood, is motivated by lust, greed, envy, rivalry, and self, our bodies are bearing the fruit of those things every single day. And so how do we change what our bodies are doing? The self has to die. The inner man must die to these things. We are not basically good on the inside, getting caught up in bad situations. We are basically bad on the inside and need to die. Christian, the Christian gospel begins with, you must, you must die. There's no way to reform the self. There's no way to bridle the body. There's no way to reform without death. You have to die first. And so when you come to Christ in the water of baptism, this is your confession, whether you say it or not. I am a slave. I'm a slave to sin. I'm powerless to free myself. And my appetite is all consuming for evil. When you come to Christ, that's your confession. I cannot get control of this. I'm a slave to sin. I am totally driven by it, even if my life looks good on the outside. And so I must die to live. In the same way that a pine tree and an oak tree cannot grow from the same seed, right? Seed bears fruit after its own kind, according to God's creation. Neither can a sin nature and a new nature share the same shell. You only get one body, right? Your body is your body. So you're either driven by and controlled by the old self, which is a slave to sin, or you are filled with and empowered by and animated by the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of God, which makes us, which, which brings our bodies into the fight, right? It's not our, just our minds that enter the spiritual realm. It's our bodies that are controlled now by our new nature. And so believing that you can manage and control your sinful appetites is the number one hindrance to living free. Thinking that you can manage them is your number one hindrance to living a life freed from that slavery. Who is the person who lives free? Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Who's the person who lives free? It's the one who has died. And folks, there is no pride in dying. There's no, there's no honorable way to die. There's no way to save your reputation in your death. 
When you come to Christ, you surrender all that. I must die in Christ. So moving into verse eight here. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. <clears throat> the heading of this passage is, uh, this portion is our, our new identity is irreversible. So here's the securing anchor. Here's the protective barrier around the difficult nature of this passage. Your new identity, your new self, your resurrected life, it's irreversible. You know, I don't like phrases like once saved, always saved, because it, <clears throat> it suggests salvation as being something more superficial than it is. Some who repeat that phrase, well, they say, well, once saved, always saved. They, they take salvation to be, well, you prayed once. The Bible doesn't, uh, that's not the basis of your salvation. However, when you come to Christ, when you die, that whole bit is done. When you die to sin, you don't come back to life to sin. God does not raise the old self again. He raises a new creature, a new creation. And our nature, don't forget, our nature and our identity and our destiny are coupled with Jesus Christ. That's why Paul anchors this reality in Christ first. Before God is not first, <clears throat> you know, you. It's Christ. Christ is the foundation of who you are before God. This is why when I was 19, my assurance changed so much. Because I recognized that I was not standing nakedly before God. I had a mediator. The Son of God had died and gone before me and stood at the right hand of God. And I came to God through Christ. And I knew Christ didn't fail. I knew Christ would never fail. I knew Christ would never <laughs> die again. I knew Christ would never be subject to death again. I knew Christ would never come back and humiliate himself the way he did. I knew Christ would never again have to bear my sins. And so in verse eight, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. That's the bottom line. If you are in Christ, you are united in his death, but you are united in his life as well. So friends, this is, this is the reality for you today. Remember, your resurrection does not wait until the return of Christ. Jesus said, those who believe have already passed from death to life. It's my conviction that the first resurrection has already taken place. And you are the evidence of that. Your lives being resurrected in Christ is the evidence of that first resurrection. Now, again, as we spoke of, there was a literal first resurrection when Jesus was, was killed. But you follow in that line. You are raised to life today. The, the, the finality of Jesus Christ and in the, in the, his glory, who he is, that is the foundation to our lives today. It's not how you feel. It's not in what you did last week or whether or not you blew it or how well things are going or how close God feels to you. Those things are not the determining factors in your Christian identity. Look to Christ. Verse 9, Paul says, if you want to know who you are, you want to know where you're going, look at verse 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. So what's your destiny as a Christian? You are in Christ. You'll never die again. You'll never return to that old self. Death no longer has dominion over him. We'll all die a, um, a first death, but the Bible doesn't even call it death. It calls it sleeping. We're not even really subjected to physical death anymore because even in our sleeping, we come back to life. 
And we come back in a glorified body. We come back better than we went into the ground. (laughs) Death has no dominion. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And so again, Christ did not die and be raised again just to preserve something in heaven which awaits you. He did. But he also died to create in you something now. He died to sin so that sin's power in your life would be destroyed. Again, so that the body of sin might be done away with. Now, you keep your same body when you become a Christian, but the body of sin is now gone because it's controlled from within by the Holy Spirit, the righteous Son of God. And he lives to God. And so, friends, this is first a thinking challenge. Don't run out of here so headstrong. I'm going to destroy all my sin. God has already destroyed your sin. You must wrap your mind and your heart around these ideas. And this is right through the, through the New Testament, especially Ephesians 4.22 says, lay aside the old self, corrupted by its lusts. Middle section, renew your mind. Back section, put on the new self. It's a thinking challenge. Is your mind controlled and renewed in the word of God and the perfection of Jesus Christ? Because everything we study about Christ is a gift to us. So renew your mind. Renew your mind. Hebrews 10.24 says, consider how to stir one another up to good works. Proverbs 1.10 says, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Do not give affirmation to their temptation." When opportunity for sin comes along, reject it. Proverbs 5.1 says, my son, give attention to my wisdom. Think about it. Renew your mind that you may observe discretion for the lips of the adulteress drip honey. So temptation isn't going anywhere, by the way. The adulteress still lives on the corner. Okay. Pornhub's not going anywhere anytime soon. Opportunity to cheat on your taxes, there'll always be some accountant who's ready to do it. There will always be opportunity to sin in this world. But in Proverbs 5, he says, give attention to my wisdom so that when you meet the adulteress with the dripping lips, she doesn't entice you. You cannot avoid temptation. You cannot remove that from your life. What you can do is remove your appetite for it. So that when you see it, it is it's repulsive to you because your nature despises it. Seizes the old, it sees the old slavery. When you see sin that some might respond to, do you see slavery? Do you see, the, do you see that which crucified Christ and that which killed you? Temptation is not going anywhere. It's your lust which must die. Renew our minds in the things of the Lord. We must consider the world that we live in and observe what is right. A lot of us, you know, we're going into environments that are not, you know, conform to the image of Christ. But we need to consider what is right and what is wicked and feed and fortify the nature that God has given us. Excuse me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I love this. He says, no, I discipline my body and I make it my slave. Paul says, another translation says, I beat my body into submission. In other words, I use the mind to discipline the body. The body is the slave of the self or the will. 
And when the person is, is inhabited by the spirit of God, the body becomes a slave to righteousness. We're going to look at that in the next couple of weeks. And so just as we wrap up, consider Christ first and foremost. His dominion is eternal. His resurrection is eternal. His vindication is full and perfect. He sits at the right hand of God, fully accepted. And you are there with him. You are seated at the right hand of God in Jesus Christ. You are before God. And God has delighted in you because of Christ. And so your own death gives way to a new life and it's to be sprung in you. And so do not accept sin's dominion. Do not resign yourself to sin's dominion. And there's a, there's a large movement in the church today or around the church, I should say, of, of being so-called faithfully LGBTQ or faithfully trans or faithfully whatever, which is the idea that we can unite the sin nature to the new nature, which is an abomination to the whole gospel. You can die to your sin. We don't, we don't, we don't attach any sin to our identity as Christ. We're not bad Christians or gay Christians or, or lusting Christians. We are Christians, which means all those other things are dead. Christ has crushed sin beneath our feet. It is slavery to be told that you should just resign to your repetitive sin nature. And yes, we will always have spots. We will always have, as Christ said to Peter, I do need to wash your feet. You are already clean because of the word that I spoke to you, but I do need to wash your feet. You don't need a whole bath. You don't need to be saved again. But you do need your feet washed. This is not a sermon that you need to be sinlessly perfect. But you need to embrace when you confront those things. I have a nature which is not designed for this, which is not given to this. Christ has put a new nature in me. And that nature, by the way, can grow. It starts small. But it grows in strength. It grows in its habits. It grows in its convictions. It grows in might. Encourage each other in good deeds. Don't enable each other with dribble like, well, that's not a big deal. Because as the, as the Jews would look at this, and as we look at the guilt offering, sin is very serious. Paul says, should we continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. So as Christians, we should never enable one another to minimize sin. It doesn't mean we condemn each other. It doesn't mean we condemn each other. But we sympathize with one another. We know that we're going through it, but we also call each other and consider how to stir each other up to good works, as Hebrews 10 says. Walk with others in their sin issues. We, we, we all have different sins that we identify with and we can help each other with. But also exhort, exhort your brothers and sisters in Christ if needed, because we are together Christ's resurrected body. Sin in one person's life is sin in the church. And just as you know, I sliced my thumb this week, uh, you know, my whole body responded to that. Deficiency <laughs> um, in one member is a deficiency in all of us. And so we don't single out and isolate and ostracize people for sins, but we come around them and we say, hey, you are the body of Christ. Let, let's walk together in that. And so we, we look uh, in the next couple of weeks Verse 12, we're going to look at next week, says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. And so we go on and we look at more practical advice. How do we turn our bodies into, into instruments of righteousness? Not how do we turn them into, but how does Christ, 
through Christian discipleship, turn our bodies into instruments of righteousness. Such an exciting topic. We don't just become neutrally not as bad. We actually become weapons for and instruments for righteousness in the world. Just like our children are called arrows. That's a, that's a war metaphor. That's an instrument metaphor. And so the Christian church should be known as instruments of righteous, not just passively not bad. That's a low, that's a low bar for Christians. Oh, we're just not as bad as we used to be. No, we become, we become useful to Christ for good works and put it, pushed into the world to do so. So let's close in prayer and then we'll sing uh, a final uh, hymn.